Welcome to episode number 198. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, and you are listening to the Pioneering Today podcast, where we are all about living homegrown and handmade, using modern homesteading to raise, preserve, and cook our own organic food, no matter where you live. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into things that you can do now that are going to help improve your next year's, both your garden experience and ideally your garden harvest and the health of your garden and just make things easier. We typically go into major planning and prepping mode for the garden, really the end of winter, early springtime through the summer months. But let me tell you, if you implement some of these strategies and do these things in fall, you're going to notice a big difference from next year's growing season. My goal with the podcast, the website, my YouTube channel, and my books is to give you the hands-on things that I have learned from decades now of raising our own food and ways that you can make it work for you. I think the important thing to remember when we are gardening is to tailor things to our specific needs, our landscaping, our growing climate, all of that. Because honestly, no one garden is going to look the exact same as someone else's. Our goal is to make it work for where we're at. And that's what I'm sharing with you guys. But I want to just stress that because too often I see where we get kind of in this trap of thinking that just because one person does something one way, that we then need to have it exactly the same way in our own garden. Now, there's some universal things with gardening that are going to benefit you no matter what climate you live in or no matter what you're doing. But I really recommend trying things out and then adjusting and going forward the next year. And don't be afraid to throw things out. If something didn't work for you, you know, look to see if there's a way that you can improve it. But if it just really wasn't working for you, even if it works awesome for somebody else, I just feel like life is too short, even in the gardening world, to really struggle through something if it's not working for you. Now, that being said, I have had tomato growing woes, not recently, but in years past. I finally, about, oh, I want to say it's been probably about six or seven years ago, really nailed the tomatoes. So there's some things that are worth pushing through and figuring out. But one of the things is I was trying to grow tomatoes in containers and that did not work well for me. I tried multiple different types of containers and my tomatoes just did not grow well in containers. So I switched to in-ground gardening with my tomatoes, but under a cover. So I use them in my high tunnel. We live here in the Pacific Northwest where we typically have a lot of cool and rainy weather, even in the summer months. And that made a huge difference. So that's what we're going to dive into. Not necessarily just talking about tomatoes. But within this episode is really looking and assessing things that didn't work well and how you are going to attack that differently and the prep things that you want to do right now for the following growing season. So my number one tip is just to do an assessment. So look at your annual vegetable garden, your container gardening, your perennials, so your fruit trees, maybe asparagus beds, rhubarb, fruit bushes, just all the things that you're going to be growing for your own food production, take a look at them and make a note, like what's doing awesome. So obviously if something is doing really well, you're having a really good crop, it seems to be really happy and producing well without issues where it's at, then you're not going to do anything with that, right? You're just going to leave that be. 
But where we really want to do some assessments, and this can come in a number of different ways. Like, did you feel totally overwhelmed with the amount of weeds that you had or the upkeep of certain garden beds? If so, what are some ways that you can change and do things differently next year? So that might be putting down some type of black plastic this year, or maybe it's several layers of cardboard to smother the weeds over the winter months so that you don't have as many come springtime. And maybe that's going to be implementing in some different types of mulches to also help with weed suppression if that was something that you were really battling with. Maybe you just had too much of certain crops. So sometimes we overplant. I always feel like it's a little bit better to overplant, honestly, though, than to underplant. But if it was to the point that you were totally overwhelmed, make a note of that and don't plant as much of that specific crop. If you were really battling with some types of disease and or insects, you're obviously going to want to identify what that specifically is. But a lot of them, if you are dealing with a disease, you're going to want to make sure that you are practicing crop rotation. So this is an important key when I'm talking about with your assessment is make sure that you know where you had your crops in the ground, especially your annual vegetables. Those are usually the things that we practice crop rotation with the most because obviously your fruit trees and your bushes, you're not moving them every year. That's one of the beautiful things about perennials. So take a snapshot. If Just use your phone. That's an easy way to remember exactly where crops were planted. Or you can write it out on a quick sketch. Use some grid paper, just a plain old piece of notebook paper and write that down. I find it really easy just to use your smartphone. Take a couple of different pictures. And then I've got that so I can easily look at it for next year in the springtime when I'm deciding what's going to go where using my crop rotation and or, and I use both, companion planting. But I look at what plants were suffering from some type of disease. And then I'm like, okay, what can I do next year that's going to help eliminate that? So for me this year, I actually had a lot of both downy mildew and powdery mildew. Now, part of that was our weather. Even by Pacific Northwest standards, we had a lot of cooler weather and a lot more rain this year than we have had probably the past five or six years. It was really wet out. So even though I wasn't doing an overhead sprinkler very often, I actually didn't have to hardly water my garden at all, which was nice on one hand. The other part problem with that is I had a lot of overhead rain. So my squash plants, especially my winter squash, more so even than my summer squash, really developed downy mildew. And then I also got some powdery mildew towards more towards the end of the season. So I'm looking at things that I can do now to help minimize that next year. Obviously, making sure that all of those plants are pulled out, that I don't leave any of those leaves to overwinter because then it's going to stay in the soil even more so. And of course, those aren't going in my compost pile. So I need to make sure that I'm pulling out all of those diseased plants and leaves and that they are either being burned or they are going in a sealed up garbage bag. Here where we live, I can do outdoor burning in a burn pile. So I will be burning those a little bit later this fall. I still have some fruit from the winter squash. We have not had our first hard frost yet that's coming on. So I'm not ready to pull them out yet. But when I do, I will be pulling them out as soon as those plants are done producing and we get that hard killing frost. Harvesting my squash, obviously, and then pulling those out. I will not be waiting at all because I don't want it to get into the ground any more than it may possibly already be. The other thing that I can do is I may try a little bit different spacing 
with my winter squash and just having a little bit more of blocks of other crops in between them so that they're not vining so close to one another and then they spread easier and then you have less airflow, which is also an issue uh, with those type of the downy mildew and the powdery mildew. The other thing I'm going to do is make a note to prune the older leaves. So those more at the base where you actually plant before it starts to vine out is to prune back some of those earlier in the season. So I have better airflow all throughout the summer months. So that's just kind of one example um, that you can use and you can use that and work that through, you know, kind of just coming up with your plan of attack now and then writing that down so that next year you got it laid out for you. I find if I just do a little bit of planning ahead of time and deciding what I'm going to do next year, it makes it so much likelier one that I'm actually going to do it and that I can stay on top of it. Because if I wait until next spring and summer when I'm actually planting these crops and then try to remember all of this, it's not fresh in your mind anymore, especially if you have been gardening for multiple years. Trust me, they tend to start to run together and you're going to have a hard time. If you've had over 20 gardens like I have, and I should say 20 years because we do spring crops, summer crops, and fall crops as well, they start to run together. Like you try to remember, was that last year or was that the year before? Just trust me. Do the assessment and write it down. And then you, if you use a planner or a calendar, pop these notes in there for later. Now, I got to tell you, talking about planners and notes and worksheets and charts, my new book, I am I literally not kidding. 20 minutes before I sat down to record this episode, I just finished editing the first round of proofs of the full book, The Family Garden Plan, raising a year's worth of sustainable and healthy food for your family. I'm so excited, guys. Doesn't even release until January 7th, 2020. So dude, circle the date. But I'm going to be having a whole bunch of really cool things coming your way soon as we gear up to when that actually launches. And I am so excited, you guys. This is the gardening book that I wish I had had. And it includes all of the charts that I wanted for myself so that it was all in a concise area. So that every year in every season, I've got it just there for me laid out as I go about doing my planning each and every year. So just had to put that in there. And that's why I'm like totally talking about planning and taking notes of things and our crop rotation and companion planting because that's all in this book with super easy to use charts and worksheets. Ah, I'm so excited if you can't tell. Okay, sorry if I just yelled in your ear. My apologies, but I'm super excited because it's going to help so much with our gardening, especially when we're going with the goal of raising a year's worth of specific crops and taking us all the way through. Okay, I will stop gushing about it, but just like heads up, there's going to be some amazing things, including free resources regarding this book coming your way shortly. As we continue our assessment, (laughs) of course, we talked about disease. Now, also insects. So if you had different insects that were really bothering your plants, Obviously, identifying what those are is key, both in disease, but also in insects, so that we know how to treat it appropriately based on what that is. So if you were dealing with some insect infestations, you're going to want to look at, are there any good types of predatory good insects that are going to help me get rid of them? So for example, if you were dealing with aphids, then you are going to want to be putting in plants that ladybugs like. You're going to want to be creating an environment that is inviting to the ladybugs and supports them because ladybugs naturally prey on aphids. 
And that's going to just be an easy way that you don't really have to do a whole lot of work other than putting those plants in and let the ladybugs handle and attack the aphids. Now, this is kind of a little bit of an off note, but if you did have aphids and you want to bring in ladybugs, you'll often see where you can actually buy ladybugs from garden centers. You can probably order them online. I've seen them in different garden centers and that type of thing. But here's the key, you guys. If you've got an aphid problem and you bring in ladybugs and you do not have the plants or an environment that is inviting to them that they like, they're not going to stay in your garden and eat aphids. So it's really better to create an environment that they like and are attracted to than it is to just bring them in because they will leave because they're, the ladybugs are seeking those plants where it's a good environment for them. And they may not stay even though you might have aphids, if you don't have that infrastructure, for lack of a better word there, in place for the ladybugs in their environment to begin with. Now, the next thing that I do is I really look not only in my annual vegetable garden, though we do that too, and looking at these different things, but I take a peek at my perennials. So did I have some fruit trees that weren't doing so hot? This could also be your flowers, your herbs, um, rhubarb, berry bushes, anything obviously that you're not planting by seed every year, but you put in the ground and it comes back the following year. But I, I take some time this time of year to assess how did that do? Now I've got a lavender plant that's been in a container plant for probably about four or five years. And it's not really growing anymore because it's grown just to the size of the container that it can. It's not going to get any bigger in that container. And that happens with container plants. So you've got stuff in container plants. The plant is only going to grow as big as the container will allow it and supporting the root growth. So I know that I need to move that lavender out of that container if I want it to flourish and grow bigger, which I do. So that's one thing you can do is looking at those container plants too and being like, do I need to move things out? Dividing is another thing to look at. Is it time to divide some of those perennials out? Usually after a perennial is established, something like chives, um, rhubarb, anything really that is a perennial, but those are ones <clears throat> that is coming to mind for me right now. They are reaching the size that I may need to divide them next year. So I just need to make a note of that once they went into their dormancy that I'm gonna need to divide them and then where am I gonna put the part that I'm dividing? Do I wanna give it away to somebody or do I just wanna increase what I've got of that and plant that in another spot on our property? The other thing I'd like to look at too is with our fruit trees and all of our perennial beds, but is it time for me to add some more specific fertilizer? So this also goes along with did my plants do well or not? And so I noticed that on my raspberries that I need to make sure that they've got plenty of nitrogen. I actually put in, I think it was 12 new raspberry canes this year. And because they are new and in new ground, they were a little bit stressed. Even though we did, I felt like we got a ton of water. I did notice because they are new and they're getting established and I want their root system and their canes to get established very well because they are a perennial, that they got a little bit of yellowing on the oldest leaves. And so I need to make sure that I really apply the manure and the compost to those bad boys this fall so that that has time to break down and get down to the roots and into the soil before we hit that spring growing time. And it really enriches those. So I've got notes to that, like, okay, we need to make sure that we're really giving these all that they need. But any of your other things, like your fruit trees. Now, I don't fertilize my fruit trees very often. Once my perennials really become established, and that's kind of the beautiful thing about using 
perennials and different permaculture designs is once they're really established, it's not very often that I do need to fertilize them, but sometimes I do. So I let my, I kind of read the signs on my plants. Also, another sign is if you didn't get a lot of growth. So if they just felt like they were kind of struggling to grow very much, or if the leaves were a paler color or especially yellowing, um, you just didn't get a whole lot of fruit production. Those can be signs that you're low on nitrogen and putting on compost and or some type of manure in the fall. It's got time as the fall and the winter months go for it to break down and feed that that soil uh, before we hit the big spring growth time. So this can be a great time of year to look at which ones need that and then do your applications. Also, when I look at do I need to add in anything new? Of course, you're going to look at your annual vegetable garden and be like, man, I should have planted more of such and such. So you can make notes for that too. But this is when I'm really looking at my perennials and I'm noticing is my family eating more and my kids, of course, are growing. So my son is hitting those teenage years and we've really noticed the past few months he's eating a lot more. So this is a time where I need to decide, do I need to add in any more of fruit trees, fruit bushes, any more perennial plants? Do I need to you know, extend. This year I put in a brand new asparagus patch. So of course, one of the bummers about asparagus is you do not get to harvest it the first year. You really need all of the plant. You don't want to take it harvesting. So it's trying to create new things. You want it to establish a really good root and crown system. So I didn't get to pick any of those. But this is where I kind of look at that and decide, do we need to put in anything more? And I, I do believe that I need to put in a pear tree. We've got cherries and plums and apples and blueberries and raspberries and elderberries and blackberries and rhubarb. I'm trying to think of all the stuff, but I don't have a pear tree. And I'm thinking it might just be time for me to put a pear tree in. So th- that's kind of the assessment uh, that we go through as well. Now, another thing that I noticed this year, as I mentioned before, the family garden plan is my new book, but you guys, I started working on this book and writing it. I mean, this has been like a two-year process. And one of the cool things is it's a color book. So you have photos that are really gorgeous and I did not take them. So I'm not bragging on my own photography there. Um, But just some really great photos, not only just because, you know, if you're a gardener, you love looking at pictures of plants and other gardens and ways to get ideas. But you also have some of those more tutorial type photos that are actually walking you through some of the things so that you get that good visual instruction as well. But what that meant was my publisher had to send my editor and the photographer up to our homestead and they came the very first week of June. Now with my growing season, normally the annual vegetable garden, like tomatoes, peppers, all those types of things, um, your beans, anything that's considered a warm annual vegetable garden, those crops, oftentimes we're not even planting until Memorial Day weekend, which means there's really not going to be a whole lot to, to take a picture of, you know, five days after you plant seeds. So this year, I really kind of ran an experiment in my own garden where I seed started things that I normally don't seed start and used cold frames, a whole bunch of different things in order to get the garden put in. I was about four or five weeks earlier than I normally would. So I was really pushing that envelope so that the plants would actually be growing and would be large enough that we could take some photos of them for the the photo shoot for the book, the main photo shoot. So what was interesting about that is some of the things I had starts that I had seed started from, some of the things I did just direct so, but I used cold frames so that the soil was warmer and 
obviously the overnight temps, it was kept warmer within these cold frames. And I tested all different kinds of them, which is all in the book and could be an entire, oh my goodness, probably quite a few episodes to dive into each of them. But I'm going to give you kind of the overhead recap here. What was interesting to me is the ones that I planted really early and used the cold frames on, because even with the cold frames, which protected them at night, so it did not kill them because we were still getting frost. So it did protect them, protect those warm weather plants against the frost protection and they were continued to grow. But because the overall daytime temps were still in the lower temperatures, they didn't grow as fast. So I noticed that even though I had, you know, the starts and they had been in the ground quite a bit longer by weeks even, that I really didn't gain a whole lot on the actual harvest side and getting a lot earlier harvest. Now, I always do this with my tomatoes. It's the only way I can get a good tomato harvest because our growing period is so short. And they were in the high tunnel, which is a bigger area that's covered. So it's warmer because it's a lot bigger. A lot of the cold frames I were using were smaller and they would be around like three or four plants. Some were row covers, um, that type of thing. But the biggest thing that I noticed is the plants that I started early and the starts that were in cold frames or I started indoors, hardened off and planted outdoors. And then the ones that I just ended up direct sowing around the same time, they pretty much ended up all at the same spot, meaning that the ones that I direct so just by seed in the ground later at our normal planting date when the starts were already out, they pretty much reached, because it was warmer and the ideal temps, those little seeds that I planted, they just outgrew and reached the same maturity at the same time as the ones that we had done earlier. So if I gained any amount of harvest like earlier from the ones that we had done with seeds starting and with cold frames, it was only probably by maybe like a week, like maybe they produced zucchini or winter squash blossoms, cucumbers, maybe about a seven, 10 days max earlier. But for the amount of work that was involved to do all of that, I really didn't feel that it was worth it. So that's good to know on my end because I won't really put all of that work out when it was only about a 10-day window that I was getting some things earlier. And I'll only do it for the crops that I really need to, like my peppers and my tomatoes. But for the rest of the things, I'm really not going to bother with doing that in the next coming year. So, And that kind of falls back to that assessment things. And there's some things... I'm a big tester. You have not noticed that. I love to test things and really see how much of a difference it makes for me. And is it worth it via the yield or the time involved, really weighing out those pros and cons? For me, it just really wasn't worth it. So good to know next year, I'm not going to go through all of that and trying to start so many things and get them going that much earlier. Now, depending upon your climate and your growing zone, you are likely if you are listening to this close to the time that it's coming out, which I'm actually recording this um, the first part of September, and it'll be releasing within a few days. But you are likely coming up on your first hard frost in the fall. So we classify a hard frost as a killing frost, meaning it's going to wipe out your warm weather crops, like it'll kill your cucumbers, your summer squash, your green beans, definitely your tomatoes and your pepper plants. And usually that is a frost that is below 30 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So usually if you start to hit 29, 28, obviously lower into the 20s, that's your really hard killing frost. Because sometimes you can get a frost that's like 32 degrees, which is almost to the, you know, hit that point of freezing, but it doesn't kill everything. Sometimes it'll kill some things, but not everything. So we're kind of talking that frost that just boom, wipes it all out. You're usually at that 30, 30 degrees, 29, 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So what's important though, is that you track that so that you know, for your area specifically, I'm talking your backyard garden, when your average first fall frost really falls. So that's something that I always mark on the calendar. Same thing in the spring when we have our last frost so that I have got accurate records for my my specific yard and my growing area. There is nothing like having data from your own place. We can get a lot of great average data from online resources. So, you know, your county extension office are just using, you know, what's my gardening zone, my average first and frost, last frost date and those type of things, but there's nothing like having that exact exact information for your yard. So that's something else that you're going to want to take note of and make sure that you write down. So I know we have touched on a lot of different gardening topics within this episode. So if crop rotation, companion planting, all of this stuff, perennials, fruit trees, all these fun things. If you're interested in learning more about that, I am doing a free online organic gardening workshop. Y'all, it starts, it's like going down. Everything begins October 2nd of this year, 2019. So make sure that you are registered because I am sending out to the people who are on the registration list. Like right now, you are getting special emails from me every week with resources tailored exactly to growing your own organic food. You want to make sure you're on that. It's going to be epic. We're going to be covering so many topics on gardening and increasing your harvest with less time using natural methods like composting, soil, improving your soil, crop rotation, all those fun things. So go and get registered. I'm going to put the link so that you can do so in the show notes. And you can also just go to melissaknorris.com forward slash garden workshop. Make sure you get your seat. On to our verse of the week. This week, we are in Psalm 16, specifically verses 5 and 6. And this is the Amplified Translation of the Bible. The Lord is my chosen and assigned portion, my cup. You hold and maintain my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good heritage. And I shared this particular passage with you guys for this week. Because not only is it my prayer for both myself and for you, and I am really learning and appreciating even more of praying scripture over ourselves, myself, my family, situations. It's God's word, right? And we know that God's word is true. He is faithful. He never breaks his promises. He never breaks his word. And there's and his word, the Bible, is living. It's called the living word. And so when we pray his promises and say his word, we're not just reading something, but it is living. And the spoken word, be it the Bible, or even when we speak negative things, positive things, but especially when we speak scripture, that is living. And it goes out. Now, you might think I'm being totally woohoo or weird here. But seriously, 
it goes out. And what we speak out loud and what we think, but especially when we speak something out loud, it goes out and goes to work for lack of a better word. So there is something very powerful about praying God's word, that living word, that scripture over ourselves and proclaiming his promises. So one, I hope that the Lord is your chosen and assigned portion and your cup. I hope that you have a relationship with him, that Jesus is your savior, and that when we make that choice and we know that he holds and maintains our lot, so we don't need to to live in fear, that he's got it, he's got us, and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a good heritage. So even when circumstances might not feel that way, and oh, my friend, have I totally been there. And I understand that some of you are probably in that spot right now where you're like, well, guess what? Doesn't feel like I'm in a pleasant place right now. And nor do I feel like I have a good heritage, but you do. And I encourage you to pray that as well. Pray that the Lord will let you see and that your lines will fall in pleasant places and that your heritage in him It is good. So on that note, I will say farewell until our next episode. And thank you so much for joining me. I hope that you learned some things and that I get to see you when we do the Organic Gardening Workshop coming up in October. Okay, bye for now, guys. 